0: Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government.
1: Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. This week, GC and I are coming to you from the Heritage Foundation's Resource Bank in Austin, Texas. So if our audio sounds a little unusual, it's because we're not in the studio. Uh, But we're excited to be in Texas. There were two opinion days this week, so let's dive right in. Does that sound okay to you, GC? You bet. Great. There was one new grant this week in the case of Unicolors Inc. v. H&M. The court is being asked to decide whether 17 U.S.C. 411, which deals with copyright infringement actions, requires referral to the Copyright Office where there is no indicia of fraud or material error as to the work at issue in the subject copyright registration.
0: That brings us to opinions this week, and there were three, starting with Garland v. Ming Dai. In a unanimous opinion by Justice Gorsuch, the court held that the Immigration and Nationality Act does not mandate a presumption of credibility in removal proceedings before an immigration judge or in subsequent collateral review before a federal court. In each of these two consolidated cases, the Bureau of Immigration Appeals affirmed an immigration judge's denial of relief to a foreign national in deportation proceedings. The Ninth Circuit reversed, applying its own judge-made rule that a petitioning alien's testimony must be considered, quote, credible and true in the absence of an explicit adverse credibility determination, which hadn't been made in these cases. The Supreme Court said, uh, no, the Ninth Circuit rule has no place in reviewing court's analysis. Nothing in the INI contemplates anything like this embellishment that the Ninth Circuit created."
1: Next up is United States versus Cooley. This was a unanimous opinion written by Justice Breyer where the court held that a tribal police officer has the authority to temporarily detain and search non-Indian persons for potential violations of state or federal law where those persons are traveling on public rights-of-way running through an Indian reservation. Usually, tribal police have power only over members of their tribe, but there is an exception for conduct that harms the health and safety of those members, and the court held that it applied here. Justice Alito wrote a concurring opinion explaining that he joined the court's opinion on the understanding that its holding is limited to the very specific circumstances mirrored by the facts of this
0: case. Last up was Van Buren. This was a 6-3 opinion by Justice Barrett where the court held that an individual, quote, exceeds authorized access, a term of art from the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, when he accesses information in areas of the computer that are off limits. Different from accessing a part of the computer for which he has access but which he does with an inappropriate reason. So here – A police officer was caught in an FBI sting operation when he was accessing license plate information from a law enforcement database in exchange for money. Now, he had the right to access the database. He didn't have the right to use it for that purpose, so he was prosecuted for exceeding authorized access. Now, the 11th Circuit construed this provision broadly and said that he exceeds authorized access when he uses it for an inappropriate reason. The Supreme Court reversed, saying – No, uh, it only refers to information that a person is not entitled to obtain by using a computer that he is authorized to access. Now, Justice Thomas, joined by Roberts and Alito, dissented. He said that it is a straightforward question whether someone has used a computer, quote, under circumstances that were forbidden. In this case, he was forbidden to access these records for the purpose in question, which he was using it for, uh, and so that's a violation of the statute.
1: A couple of interesting points about that case, GC. I think this is one of the first times that Justice Breyer has been the senior justice in the majority, meaning he got to assign the opinion uh, for who would write it.
0: That is interesting. That means he assigned it to Justice Barrett.
1: That's right. Another interesting fact, uh, Professor Oren Kerr, who's written extensively on criminal law issues, uh, received a number of cites in this opinion, and I'm sure he'll have a lot to say about this case going forward.
0: Yeah, I think in total he was cited four times between the majority and the dissent uh, for a larvae article he wrote and an amicus brief that he wrote that he filed. Really remarkable.
1: It is, and he has a great Twitter feed as well, so check him out there too. <laughs>
0: Well, that brings us to my interview, and uh, we have a Supreme Court advocate this week, but a little different than usual. Well, we've had many veteran advocates on the show, but we've never had someone who's at the beginning of their appellate career. There are decades of experience between graduating law school and becoming a veteran Supreme Court litigator, the likes of uh, Paul Clement or Lisa Blatt, and we've never covered those intervening years. So today, I'm delighted to introduce Joshua Prince, an associate at Cher Jaffe, a boutique law firm based in here in D.C. Gene Cher clerked for Chief Justice Warren Burger and Justice Antonin Scalia, and Eric Jaffe clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas, and other attorneys at the firm have also clerked at the High Court. Joshua's name might be familiar to you if you read Supreme Court briefs and petitions. In just the three years he's been practicing, his name has appeared on about two dozen SCOTUS filings. Josh, welcome to the show.
2: Uh, Thanks, JC. Happy to
0: be here. So, Josh, at what point, before, during, or after law school, did you decide that you wanted to be an appellate litigator? Uh,
2: You know, it was definitely during law school. I did not start my uh, time in law school with really any idea of what an appellate litigator does. I had a general idea that uh, if something went wrong at the trial court, you could appeal it to a higher court, but I didn't know you know, what was required to do that, or uh, the steps that needed to be taken, anything uh, of the kind. Uh, But in my 1L legislation and and regulation class, uh, I had a really good professor who taught me how to both read the law and interpret it. And I really enjoyed that aspect of legal practice. Uh, And I quickly learned that through appellate litigation, I would be able to do that as a career.
0: So many law students, uh, at least at one point in time, myself uh, included, want to pursue an appellate career, but there are relatively few of those positions. What did you do to increase your chances of landing one of them?
2: Uh, The clearest answer is that it was dumb luck. Uh, (laughs) But uh, if I had to explain any of my own steps, I jumped at every possible opportunity that I could find. Um, and as you mentioned, there were few, um, when there was a short term opening in the criminal appeals division at the Utah attorney general's office, I applied. Uh, and even when that position ended, I volunteered to stay on for free. They only had funding for one clerk and, um, my successor had come on, but I offered to continue on. Um, I, I was blessed to have a wife who, uh, put me through law school. She's a teacher and we were living on a meager teacher salary, but it was enough, uh, that I was able to focus on things without, without hurting the family. and So I just jumped at every chance I could.
0: Speaking of jumping at chances, you did a bunch of internships during law school, uh, starting with one in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Salt Lake City. What did you do there?
2: Uh, so I was in the narcotics division at the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, and most of my time there was spent writing. Uh, And writing and writing. Uh, It really never seemed to stop, Uh, but it was a great experience. I was in um, a situation where I was mostly responding to motions to suppress evidence. Uh, As as you can imagine in a prosecutor's office, uh, there are a lot of Fourth Amendment issues that come up. And uh, as you no doubt know, if the officers collecting evidence do something that runs afoul of the Fourth Amendment's protections, you can suppress that evidence in trial, meaning that it's no longer admissible against you. Yet. And so I, I spent a lot of time responding to those motions and r- really enjoyed it. It was my first real opportunity to both learn the law and apply it. And um, I learned a lot from it.
0: As a, So your next internship was with a federal magistrate judge, Paul Warner. Were you there suddenly in the position to be deciding some f- motions to suppress that you... Uh of the sort that you would have been writing?
2: No, not at all. Um, in in fact, I didn't do any criminal work when I was with judge Warner. Um, I mostly did discovery disputes, uh, in that capacity. And so, um, he, he and I would, you know, sit in chambers and discuss the papers. And based on the arguments before us, uh, judge Warner would make a decision on what was the correct decision, uh, for both the parties and for, you know, furthering the public's trust in the rule of law. Um, And because both of those issues were things that he deeply cared about, I grew to deeply care about them as well. And I I gained a lot of respect for Judge Warner Hmm. in the time I was there. And he's hilarious. He's one of the funniest people I've ever met.
0: (laughs) Do you have a favorite story uh, working for Judge Warner?
2: Overall, the entire experience was really great. Um, I can't think of anything specifically. I, I just know that there were many times when I would leave his office just laughing because of something that he said. Um, I, I wish I had something more specific to say.
0: <laughs> uh, after after that internship, you then worked for the Utah Attorney General's Office uh, in the Criminal Appeals Division. What did you do there?
2: I, I got the full appellate experience in, in the Utah Attorney General's Office. It was my first job doing appeals and i uh drafted briefs and um both at the appellate level and also i got to do some federal habeas work uh, which was a lot of fun but incredibly complicated the federal habeas statutes are uh, just a web of interrelated uh, procedural steps and really a puzzle to to put together and I, i i enjoyed learning federal habeas in that time uh the, the most substantive thing that I got to do was uh, I, I got to argue my first case in a real court in uh, as a 3L uh, before the Utah Court of Appeals. And that was a, a great experience as well.
0: No kidding. Was it typical for uh, law students to be given so much substantive work?
2: Uh, at least the writing was. The, the oral argument was not. Uh, there had recently been a change to Utah's... Um, student practice rule. And the attorney that had written the brief in this particular case had moved on to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and so they needed somebody to fill the role and do the oral argument. And um, with no shame at all, I I reached out to the uh, head of the division and I said, look, I can do this oral argument under the rules. I know it hasn't been done before, uh, but if you're comfortable with it, I would love to take the opportunity. And uh, they worked with me. And I was able to have my first and only oral argument at that time because they took a chance on me.
0: That is bold. Well done. So, uh, what, so tell me about what was the case and how did that, how did the oral argument go for you?
2: Uh, <laughs> you know, I have not taken a chance to, to, to listen to it since it happened, uh, because I was terrified throughout the experience. <laughs> um, but I think it went fairly well. We, uh, the case was a Sixth amendment case, uh, asking whether there is a right to competent standby counsel. So the, the constitution grants criminal defendants the right to an attorney, but it also grants them the right to waive that, that right. And this per- particular defendant waived his right to an attorney uh, and, and the court granted standby counsel just to sort of hold his hand as needed throughout the process. And then on appeal, after uh, this defendant was convicted, he, he claimed that his standby counsel was ineffective and, and tried to uh, apply the traditional Strickland uh, framework of uh, deficient performance and uh, prejudice to standby counsel. And so I got to argue that, uh, you know, the right to counsel is sort of mutually exclusive uh, with the right to represent yourself. You can't really have both. And uh, by waiving his right, he also waived his right to effective counsel.
0: So after your time at the um, Attorney General's office, you then interned for Shared Duncan, which would become your present firm, uh, after Kyle Duncan, uh, that is Judge Kyle Duncan, was a, confirmed to the Fifth Circuit. So why did you choose to work at that firm, and uh, what did you do there as an intern? Uh,
2: this, this one, again, was just fortuitous. I went to Brigham Young University for law school, and it offers a class called the Supreme Court Advocacy Clinic. Um, And the clinic included both a doctrinal session where we learned about the high court, the process of filing a cert petition, what makes a good amicus brief, the the procedural steps uh, as to when amicus briefs can be filed, everything you could possibly think of with respect to the high court. Uh, But it also had a substantive portion where you work on briefs that are eventually filed in the Supreme Court. And every student that takes the Supreme Court Advocacy Clinic at BYU is also an intern at, uh, at now Share Jaffe, but at the time mm-hmm. Share Duncan. And so it really just worked out well. I didn't know when I signed up for the class that I was signing up to be an intern as well, but it mm-hmm. was the best thing that could have happened to me.
0: Well, you must have made a good impression because they eventually hired you back. But uh, in the meantime, you worked, like you mentioned at the beginning, at the Clark County DA's office. What did you do there?
2: Uh, Yeah, my experience there was very similar to my experience at the Utah Attorney General's office. Uh, It was mostly just a difference of degree, uh, if anything. I I wrote dozens of appellate briefs and uh, did a lot of habeas work, this time not in federal court but in state court, and got some courtroom experience as well. A a few of the habeas cases that I worked on ended up having evidentiary hearings, uh, and I got to do some cross-examinations and things of that nature there. So it was a great one-year experience. I loved it.
0: While you were there, you successfully petitioned or successfully opposed, I should say, a petition for uh, certiorari to the Supreme Court. What, uh, what was that case, and was that your first time working on a matter uh, at the Supreme Court level?
2: Uh, it was not my first time. I, I had had some experience uh, when I was uh, an intern at Sher Duncan. So I, I sort of knew what to do, and it was actually Share Duncan that got me the opportunity to write that brief it was a capital case and it, uh, because of that, because I was fresh at a law school, just, just months at a law school, uh, it wasn't assigned to me. Um, uh, but I saw it on the list of briefs and uh, following the same pattern that I, I did in the AG's office, I knew that I wanted it. And so I went to the attorney assigned to it and asked if I could have it. And,
0: uh um, I'm detecting a theme here, <laughs> yeah, uh, precociousness.
2: Uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I had my case all prepared. I, I said, I won't let it interfere with the work that I have been assigned. Um, you know, I've done this before. I'll draft it quickly. And it was early enough in the process that he knew that if I really messed it up, he could fix it. And so he gave it to me. And um, I, I busted the brief out over the weekend and we filed it basically as is. Uh, it, it was really neat. Great
0: to work well with Well done. So what made you return to Share Jaffe uh, after your time there?
2: Uh, Michael Worley, uh, who was my predecessor, left for a federal clerkship, and um, he and my colleague James Heiltern reached out to me um, and, and said that the position was opening up. Gene Sher, my former professor, had uh, told them to reach out to me to see if I wanted to apply, and uh, I really look up to Gene. He had been a wonderful mentor to me when I was an intern as a student, and uh, the, the chance of working with him again uh, was something that was too good to pass up.
0: So how many Supreme Court cases have you worked on now, including petitions?
2: Uh, let's see. I have drafted the first draft of two petitions. And then we do a lot of work with amicus briefs. And then I've, I've done some work on the merits as well. So it's it, it's a growing number. It's still quite small compared to the other people that you have on. But uh, I'm <laughs> incredibly blessed to be able to work on them.
0: What are some of the issues and cases that you have focused on?
2: You know, it, it's been a lot of fun. It's just been a chance to work on a string of issues that are important to me. We've we've done work on LGBT issues, religious liberty, voting rights, the separation of powers, abortion, what what, what have you. Um, and as as a junior associate, I do a lot of the initial research on these briefs and a lot of the initial drafting, uh, and then the army of amazing attorneys that I work with bring it up to snuff after I get my draft off. Um, and it, it has been so much fun just working with them and seeing what a brief can do to change from, you know, a first draft to a file draft. There, there's always just so much to do. And it's, it's been a great learning experience for me.
0: Besides Supreme Court cases, do you also work on uh, uh, other appellate matters or even trial level work? We
2: do. Uh, we work with several states to defend their abortion regulations, uh, and that has given the members of my firm a lot of experience at the trial level. Um, we, just a few months ago, had our first trial um, in one of those abortion cases, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, and we've got another one coming up in June. So we, we really get the whole gambit at Sher Jaffe, and I've um, had a chance to work at, at every level of the judiciary. i
0: so, you know, you're, you're now three years out of law school. You've already landed many law students' dream job. If you can distill it, what is the secret to your success?
2: The secret for me has been to look for any opportunity I, I can to get an appellate experience. Um, starting in law school, um, you, you really just have to throw yourself into the ring, even if you know that there are other people who are more qualified. Uh, Than you, because otherwise you'll never get a chance. Um, So that's step one. Step two would be to meet people and develop relationships with them, Uh, because once you do that, the opportunities will follow. Um, What that looks like in practice, at least for me, uh, was spending a lot of time on Twitter, uh, introducing (laughs) myself to uh, to appellate litigators, and also um, running the halls of the Mayflower every November at the. Federal Society National Lawyer Convention, (laughs) uh, and speaking to as many people as I possibly could.
0: So you mentioned that uh, um, Gene Sher is a mentor of yours. Who else have become mentors over that process?
2: Yeah. um, Jonathan Van Boskirk was one of the attorneys that I worked with at the Clark County DA's office. And he is uh, someone that I will forever look up to as an example of just being a consummate professional. He was there every single day, making sure that he did what a prosecutor is supposed to do. He was seeking seeking justice, and um, he too took me under his wing, and um, I'll forever be grateful to him for that. Uh, but also at my firm currently, Eric Jaffe and Chris Bartolomucci have uh, been great mentors as well. Um, for anybody that has ever worked with Eric Jaffe, uh, you'll you'll know that there's no better editor than him. and my writing has improved so much, uh, with his guidance. And, um, one thing that really sticks out with Eric is that he's always willing to discuss ways that I can improve. And I'm always looking for, uh, for that chance as well. So he he's, he's been fantastic also.
0: Who are some other Supreme court, uh, advocates who you most admire?
2: You know, it has to be Gene. Um, I know that a lot of my answers have come back to him, but, uh, I, I first heard his name when he left his position uh, as the head of Winston and Strong's appellate practice uh, for religious reasons. He he left to defend the constitutionality of Utah's traditional marriage law uh, before Obergefell was decided. And um, I thought that took a lot of courage. Uh, not only was he leaving a position that he had worked decades to achieve, uh, but he was doing it because he felt compelled to by his religious beliefs. And, and those are beliefs that that I share and, so for me, what, what that showed was that I don't have to abandon my beliefs to be a good attorney. And that, that's been an, an important lesson that I've carried with me.
0: Well, Josh, I have one final question for you before we let you go. You probably have heard this one before. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about?
2: Uh, this might be an unusual answer, uh, for people that have been on the show, but it would be Justice Brandeis for me.
0: Interesting. Um, Tell me why.
2: Well, it certainly isn't because I agree with his jurisprudence. Uh, to, to the contrary, I disagreed with basically everything he wrote (laughs) (laughs) with few exceptions. Um, but for me, uh, it's actually a similar reason to why I so respect Gene. It's because he had beliefs that he stood up for um, and experienced a lot of persecution because of them. Um, He had colleagues on the court who would, you know, not conference with him or not have discussions with him because he was Jewish. And I I can only imagine that that would have been incredibly frustrating. And it it sounds so foreign uh, today with, uh, you know, all of our expectations that You don't judge someone because of their religious beliefs, uh, but it was something that he had to go through every day. Um, I mean, they invented the Supreme Court hearing process because of the fact that he was the first Jewish person who had been nominated to fill a seat as as an associate justice. And and he just went through so much religious persecution that I I would just love to talk to him about, about that experience and just tell him that I admire him for that reason.
0: Well, Josh, it has been such a delight to have you on. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
0: All right, Zach, I don't know if you saw it, but uh, Chief Justice Roberts delivered a virtual commencement address to Georgetown Law recently. He quipped that Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes was a better source for quotes than for the law. I agree. I think it's right. (laughs) But that got me thinking about other justices and graduations, so I've cooked up a few trivia questions for you. All right. Hit me with them. All right. Which law school has produced the most Supreme Court justices? I'm going to guess either Harvard or Yale, and I would probably lean towards Harvard. That is correct. Now, Harvard has produced the most Supreme Court justices of uh, various law schools. 21 attended in some capacity, 17 graduated. Uh, Yale is second place with 11 having uh, attended in some capacity and 9 having graduated. Uh, Do you know who's in third place?
1: I would guess another Ivy League school. Uh, So I'll guess Columbia.
0: Very nicely done. Uh, It has produced seven justices who attended in some capacity and four graduates. So one chief justice did not have an Ivy League degree for law school. He graduated from Tulane. Do you know who that was?
1: I don't know, but I hope he's... uh No, I don't know.
0: Okay. (laughs) It was (laughs) Uh. Edward White. Uh, Chief Justice White received his law degree from Tulane. President Grover Cleveland, a Democrat, appointed him to the court as an associate justice in 1894. President Taft, a Republican, elevated him to the position of chief. Because Taft was a Republican, this selection surprised a lot of people. Some speculated that Taft selected White over the younger Charles Evans Hughes, who he had recently appointed to the court as an associate, so that Taft himself could still have a chance at being chief justice one day. If true, it's a gamble that paid off because Taft succeeded White as chief justice. That is some three-dimensional chess right there by Taft.
1: It really is, but the gamble seemed to uh, to pay off. Yeah, well done. Now, I will tell you this GC, I actually watched a video uh, a while back uh, with last week's guest uh judge douglas ginsburg was moderating a panel uh, about chief justice taft it was a fascinating discussion uh, and they talked a little bit about this issue uh, so i highly encourage huh. folks to go uh, to go watch it
0: well since you seem to be such an expert in taft Uh-oh.
1: <laughs> I, I feel like i've set myself up for some trouble here
0: <laughs> where did taft
1: go to law school zach well gc since you happen to ask uh I think he went to the University of Cincinnati.
0: Oh, man, I'm disappointed that you got that right. I was really quite excited about tripping you up there. but. Well, well done. Yes, he did. Although, uh, it's not... It, let, let, me, let me regain some dignity here by ribbing you a little bit. It is correct Too late. answer. Too late for that. No, you are correct, but only technically correct. It's not entirely accurate. That's the best kind of correct. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Taft actually attended Yale for undergrad. He attended Cincinnati's College of the Law. Uh, in 1896, however, the University of Cincinnati established a law department. The following year, the university merged with Cincinnati College, which let the university inherit Taft, who had graduated law school in, ni- in 1880 as an alum. So. Uh, splitting hairs here, splitting GC. Hair, splitting, hairs. splitting hairs. Splitting hairs. The law school changed afterwards, so he sort of graduated not from there.
1: But here's another fun fact, GC <laughs> uh, William Howard Taft, who was a Sixth Circuit judge at the time, actually became the University of Cincinnati Law School's first dean. All right,
0: I get it. You know Taft.
1: Listen, I'm not saying I've watched a YouTube video uh, discussing his uh, tenure as Chief Justice, but
0: I might have. Well, so. well done, Zach. I think you it's uh, fair to say you stumped the trivia asker today. Well done.
1: I'm not sure what that says about my social life, but it helps me <laughs> in SCOTUS 101 trivia, so I'll take it. And that's all we have for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and now iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star
0: rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted.
2: You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.